So here, um, I'm honored to introduce Dr. Eric Dar. Um, and uh, Dr. Dar is a longstanding researcher in the field of HIV. He is a professor of medicine at the School of Medicine at UCLA. He's the chief of the Division of HIV Medicine at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and is the acting chair of the Department of Medicine at Harbor UCLA. And um, he is next going, he is um, sharing his screen here and he is now going to tell us about topical management decisions in 2020. Thank you, Eric. Great. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, everybody at uh, ISUSA. And thanks for all of the other speakers who are willing to sit in and be part of this panel. Uh, I was trying to think of what would be the best cases to talk about today. I thought it would be worthwhile to address what I think have been some of the more compelling new issues or novel issues that we're all dealing with that aren't always easy. Uh, one of the nice things about a panel discussion like this is that we don't always have to have the answers to all the questions. We have the panelists who can weigh in and share what rationale they use for each of those decisions. So um, what we're going to talk about is, sorry, one second. Um, what we're going to talk about is uh, describe a little bit about dealing with women of childbearing potential in antiretroviral therapy, uh, describe treatment strategies and how they're impacted by certain comorbid and other conditions, and then talk a little bit about safely optimizing therapy in those who are virologically suppressed. So it's sort of a good segue from the discussion about long-acting therapy and how that's going to fit into clinical practice, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but I think in in practice, probably one of the most common things we're doing now is making modifications to therapy in people who are suppressed. And there are lots of good reasons to do it, and there are some pitfalls. So we'll talk through some of those things. So let me go ahead and start with this case. Uh, this is a 32-year-old African-American woman who was newly diagnosed with HIV. She has no past medical history, but states multiple male partners with infrequent condom use in the last year. And her laboratories show a CD4 of 150, a viral load of 734,000. Uh, she has had an HIV genotype performed that shows wild-type virus. And her CBC metabolic panel are all normal. Hepatitis studies are all negative. HLA-B5701 negative, and a pregnancy test is negative. And upon further evaluation and her examination, she's a healthy young woman, normal vital signs, her BMI is 30, um, but an otherwise completely normal exam. And she's ready to start therapy, hoping for something simple like everybody else. Um, and at this point, she tells you that she's planning to do everything possible to avoid getting pregnant. So let me ask this first question of the audience, and then we'll bring it back to the panel. What would you recommend for this patient? And then I have a list of pretty standard regimens, dolutegravir, abacavir, 3TC, dolutegravir with FTC, tenofovir, either DF or alafenamide, uh, dolutegravir, lamivudine, a two-drug regimen, bictegravir, emtricitabine, tenofovir, alafenamide, raltegravir plus emtricitabine with tenofovir, duravirine plus two nukes, one of the newer regimens approved, or something else. And the characteristics of the patient just to remind you, are listed at the bottom. So go ahead and vote. Okay, so we have about 60% Bictegravir, Emtricitabine, TAF, and then a mix of the other choices, all of which are pretty reasonable choices. So maybe let me just reach out to a couple of our panelists and maybe... Um, 
maybe Connie Callum, since both Monica and Connie Benson have been working hard, uh, maybe you can first weigh in and tell me, you know, one, what you would have chosen. And then two, the other thing is there are a few characteristics in this patient that maybe you can weigh in on how that might have influenced your decision making, both the childbearing potential, the viral load, and the BMI. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. So I, um, well, in the hospital where I work, um, the fourth option with the Tegravir is not on formulary. And so we have to go through um, a bit of a process to get it approved. So I it probably would not have been my first choice, although I think it's an excellent choice, but just um, it's simpler to start on uh, a non-Bictegravir containing regimen at our hospital. Uh, so I would have weighed uh, the second option with dolutegravir and um, uh, tenofovir and imtricitabine as, a, I think, a very potent regimen, has many of the advantages of the fourth except for uh, the fact it doesn't have TAF. And I think the sort of weighing the issues around TAF versus tenofovir, obviously the two um, biggest issues are um, the kidney sparing uh, aspects of TAF and also um, modestly lower uh, reduction in bone mineral density with with TAF. So that would be a downside to two. Um, I, number one, I wouldn't choose. I just I feel like we have enough alternatives to a back of ear, even though she's uh, HLA B5701 negative, given the maybe increased risk of heart disease. I think that's um, would not be on my list. Um, third option, I'm sorry, I have to move the screen. I can't see it here. Um, I have not um, generally gone to the two drug options of dolutegravir and lamivudine. I, I know there are growing data to suggest it's efficacious, but I feel more comfortable starting with a three-drug regimen. And of the three-drug regimens, I wouldn't choose five because I think raltegravir is not the most potent uh, uh, integrase inhibitor. And six, I, I guess I'm not sure there's a real compelling reason to use Durabrine in her situation. Um, and I think just to wrap up, I'll say the things that I would be mindful of is she's starting with a really high viral load, and she also has a high BMI. And so with any of the integrase inhibitors, I would be, um, like if I did choose two, or if it were on my formulary, I too would have chosen four. Um, I would want to monitor weight gain and also just make sure that her viral load drops quickly over the first uh, couple of months. Okay, great. Well, let me, um, let's move on because we're going to touch on some of these other specific issues along the way. I think it'd be so, good to, yeah, okay, I'd like to bring up just a couple points. Um, oh, please, I'm sorry. Sorry, just because I, I think that it was a great point that you made, Connie, about the TAF um, question and the big type of a question in number four. And at the current moment, and it doesn't mean that we're not going to use it soon, we don't have a lot of data on that TAF during pregnancy. It is relatively newer than TDF. Um, and um, though it probably has uh, uh, safety advantages over TDF with bone, which you would be concerned about with the fetus, the pharmacokinetics of TAF in pregnancy have not been sorted out. Um, neither have Bictegravir. So 
that fourth option isn't currently on our recommendations for pregnant women. Um, but the issue with that you point out very well is that Roltegovir is, is actually on our recommendations, you know, by the by the panel. That's harder to take, and um, we would have to divide it into its twice a day dosing um, and not go once a day for pregnancy. And then I think it would be remiss not to discuss. Of she's not pregnant yet. She's not. She's not pregnant yet. That's <laughs> fair. And so it isn't. It isn't certainly recommended as for naive therapy because of its. Um, it is by one set of guidelines, but and not the other. But it really is. It's BID and it's less potency. I completely agree with you that dolutegravir and bigtegravir are um, are uh, are m- more recommended. And then, you know, we can't not mention that uh, someone of childbearing age could get pregnant. And so I think this question will have us lead to the discussion of dolutegravir, just because. And, and we will talk more about big it. discussion. And so we can, yeah, we can talk more. Okay, thank you. Let's. Um, so these are those guidelines that Monica's referring to, the two sort of key U.S. guidelines, the DHHS and the ISUSA, um, and they're they're pretty similar in that they're mostly integrase based. I mean, they're exclusively integrase based. The big difference is DHHS has continued to have raltegravir as an option, and probably a big part of that relates to this issue of women of childbearing potential, and we'll talk more about that. Um, and then they have the two-drug regimen, dolutegravir-3-TC here, um, which was not um, available or uh, at the time the ISUSA guidelines were formulated. But as you know, and we'll talk about this, this uh, the study looked at people with viral loads of over of less than 500,000 um, and didn't have hep B and who had no evidence of resistance. So that's the group that the DHHS panel suggested that this could be a preferred option for most people. Um, then these are just the Gemini data that people have alluded to. These are the two large registrational trials that only included people with viral loads up to 500,000 at screening. Um, and the other things that were important characteristics is that they had to have resistance testing available and have no resistance, so not a population for a rapid start. And they also um, couldn't have chronic hep B because they were only getting one HEP-B active drug. So they compared the dolutegravir-3-TC to dolutegravir with the two nukes, FTC-TDF, um, and showed at 48 and then 96 weeks superimposable curves for virologic suppression. So that 48 weeks, the primary endpoint, it clearly met non-inferiority with high rates of suppression. There was no emergence of resistance to any of the drugs in either of the regimens or study arms, and 96 weeks confirmed that. It was the 96-week data came out um, that the DHHS panel decided there was enough data with this very novel two-drug combination to move forward, both based on its efficacy, but also based on the fact that um, there was no emergent resistance, which is what we've come to expect in these sort of second-generation instes with two nuke-based regimens. One of the questions that comes up for a patient like this one is, what about the viral load? Well, it turns out when the FDA reviewed the, the submission for dolutegravir 3TC, which is now available as a single tablet regimen, um, they made the decision to not limit the indication to the people that were enrolled in the study in regards to baseline viral load. Um, and I don't know precisely the reason why they made that decision. It's a little unusual to approve a drug for an indication in which it wasn't specifically tested, i.e. 
viral loads of over 500,000. Um, but, but they did, and, and they did note that there was a small number of people uh, who, while at screening were less than 500,000, at baseline were over 500,000. And overall, virologic suppression were reasonably high in both groups, although you can see a little bit of a difference here. It was mostly not driven by viral failures. In fact, there were no virologic failures in those viral loads over 500,000 in either study arm. So there is some data in the higher viral load groups, but it's pretty limited. Um, and that's why the DHHS panel, despite the FDA indication, regardless of baseline viral load, the DHHS panel decided to go with what was included in the study. So let me ask you another question. This is sort of getting towards what we started to talk about. And that is, what if she was planning to get pregnant or wasn't going to reliably use contraception, so you were concerned that she might get pregnant? So I'm going to ask you these same choices again. Uh, dolutegravir or Bacavir 3TC, Dolutegravir plus Emtricitabine, Tenofovir, either form, Dolutegravir Lamivudine, Bictegravir, Emtricitabine, TAF, Raltegravir plus Emtricitabine, Tenofovir, Doravirine plus Tunus or something else. Go ahead and vote. Okay, so 60% now shifted to raltegravir, um, and uh, about 10% 10, 10 bictegravir, 16% dolutegravir. So Monica, you were started to sort of introduce the topic, and I'm, I'm going to have a follow-up question related to TDF and TAF. So perhaps you can maybe focus us a little bit on how your decisions about the third drug um, are affected by the fact that this is a woman of childbearing potential who may get pregnant while on therapy. Yes, so um, it, and sorry if, uh, yeah, sorry about talking about pregnancy before, because now we're, now she's interested in pregnancy. Um, I think that, I, I think we do have to talk about dolotegravir then for a minute, because questions are coming in on the chat um, about dolotegravir and what, what really happened two years ago, which was sort of a shock, um, which was that a study that was very carefully adjudicated looking at uh, neural tube defects uh, born of women in Botswana called the Tisamo cohort, uh, women who were um, living with HIV and were either on efavirenz or dolotegravir because those were both being used at the time in Botswana. Dolotegravir was being rolled out earlier than other places um, uh, in low- and middle-income countries. And in the Tisamo cohort, there was an increased risk of uh, neural tube defects um, for babies born of mothers who are on dolotegravir compared to efavirenz, which was surprising and um, not expected because the study really was looking at that same question for those on efavirenz. Um, the Tisamo cohort, cohort then a year later uh, at IAS presented data um, on their updated penultimate uh, data um, that showed that this risk had gone down quite a bit um, and, in fact, um, was uh, barely above the risk of efavirenz, but was still, you know, slightly, slightly, there was a slight increased risk um, of neural tube defects on those on dolotegravir. For that first year, uh, the WHO had was about to roll out the guidelines for making dolotegravir first line in low and middle income countries. And the guidelines uh, put out that that would be true of cisgender men, but not of cisgender women. Um, and so there was 
quite a bit of time, about a year, um, in the under the WHO guidelines, where there were sort of two different systems of what to put patients on, uh, keep women of childbearing age on Efavirenz, uh, but put men on Dolotegavir. Then with that penultimate data, it was really very reassuring and uh, the guidelines really changed to recommend dolotegavir for all people, um, whether they were women or not. Um, and the DHHS guidelines in this country brought down the level of concern, but still kept it. Uh, we will see final data from the Tisamal cohort presented next week at AIDS 2020. Um, and there will be a release of that information soon, but it's all going in the right direction. And so because of that, really dolotegravir is becoming less and less of a concern uh, for women of childbearing age. And to address someone's question in the chat, I think it's pretty much laid rest for the WHO um, to recommend it for everyone. So I think we're good with those top, um, with uh, the, the, the second one, which I think would be TDF in this case. Um, TAF, like we were mentioning before, just doesn't have the data in um in uh, pharmacokinetic data for women up in pregnancy, and neither does Bictegravir. And because of that, um, uh, the third regimen is actually not on, at least on the guidelines, though I think uh, uh, Dr. Callum's right that a lot of people would be using it. And then the fourth one is actually on the guidelines for the DHHS, which is fifth, sorry, the Rotegravir regimen, but that is, um, it's a little harder to take, and you do have to do it twice a day. And um, its pharmacokinetics can go down a little in the third trimester. And so... Um, a lot of people who are familiar with this aren't using Beltegravir as much as Dolotegravir. So which one did you vote for if you were able to vote, which I know you I, I would have voted for number two, but with TDF. Okay. Okay. Anyone else, any other panel members want to weigh in on this? We have more to go. So, okay, let's move on. It's been made, so let's move on. Okay, perfect. Um, so uh, Monica mentioned where the WHO is, um, and they say it can be prescribed for women, girls of childbearing potential who wish or are not avoiding pregnancy if they have been fully informed of the potential increased risk for neural tube defects. DHHS guidelines list allutegravir as preferred for pregnant women, um, irrespective of trimester, but alternative for those who are trying to conceive based on the data that's currently available. And again, it's all about balancing the benefits of Tegravir, um, its simplicity, convenience, tolerability, efficacy, high barrier to resistance versus the modest risk. Um, so this was a study that was presented at CROI, this IMPACT 2010, uh, which was an open label phase three trial in pregnant women between 14 and 28 weeks gestation were treatment naive um, and started on dolutegravir with either FTC-TAF, FTC-TDF, or FTC-Efavirenz, um, FTC-TDF. So it was a, a large randomized control trial comparing efavirenz to dolutegravir and then dolutegravir with TDF or TAF. So by far and away, our biggest experience in pregnancy trying to look at TAF. And what it showed was that um, Dolutegravir-based therapy was non-inferior and even superior to Fabrin's for RNAs of less than 50. Um, both did extremely well um, for viral loads less than 50 at delivery, 98 and 91%, but favored the Dolutegravir-based regimen regardless of whether it was with TDF or TAF, and there were some effect benefits associated with TAF. So I don't know where the perinatal guidelines are going to ultimately go with this kind of data, 
especially because although, as Monica alluded to, we usually make decisions about what drugs to use in pregnancy based on safety and pharmacokinetics. The problem is assessing the pharmacokinetics of TAP is always challenging because what we measure in blood is not as important as what we measure in the cells. But this is at least a pretty large randomized control trial that suggests that TAP may work. And um, the guidelines have generally said for a while now that if somebody is stably suppressed on a regimen who's found to be pregnant, that it's okay to continue them on it. And this would support that foundation if someone's on town. So let me go to the next question. Hope everybody's on slide 17. Um, the person started Dolutegra FTC TAP with good tolerance, viral suppression, but continued to gain weight over the next 18 months. And the BMI increased to 35. You've counseled them about diet and exercise, but the weight just continues to gradually go up. Um, and the question is, what would you recommend? As I think everybody is aware, this has been an ongoing issue. And I think Connie raised this earlier. So would you just keep working on diet and exercise and push forward with the regimen or switch to Dolutegravir Abacavir 3TC, Bictegravir FTC TAF, Dolutegravir 3TC, Dolutegravir Piverine, uh, switch to a Raltegravir containing regimen, or an insti sparing regimen, PI or NNRTI or something else. So go ahead and vote. Great, so we have a nice mix, which is exactly what I hoped for, since none of us really know the right answer. The majority of the largest proportion, 36%, said they'd switch to an insti sparing regimen. And then a variety of other choices that are listed here. Um, Connie Benson, do you mind weighing in as to what you might do in a situation like this? Well, I think I would have been one of the uh, 36% and switched to an insti-sparing regimen, probably with one of the newer NNRTIs. I think the issue of weight gain and increase in BMI with the integrase inhibitors continues to be one of intense interest investigationally and clinically. The, there's evidence clear that appeared to show each of the individual integrase inhibitors has been associated with weight gain, although there are differences in and among the, the different integrase inhibitors with dolutegravir leading the way and then others following with less impressive gains in weight. Here you have a patient who's already had a, a substantial increase in BMI and I don't think that switching to an alternative integrase inhibitor will have as much of an impact as uh, switching to an integrase inhibitor sparing regimen. So I was among the group that uh, voted for number seven. Um, I think we're still working out what the relationship is with individual integrase inhibitors and how we might abrogate the weight gain effectively in people who've already had a substantial increase. So that's something we may hear about at IES or at next year's COI. Great. Um, is Chip on our panel? I am. Great, Chip. Do you want to disagree with Connie? Never, never. <laughs> Good answer. No, I think uh, here too, because we're, she may still be planning on pregnancy and it's hard to, uh, to deal with weight gain in pregnancy as well. Uh, particularly if she's thinking about that, switching to something that isn't as challenging in terms of weight gain might be a good idea as well. So I, I'm with a 36%. 
Anyone else have anything desperately they'd like to weigh in or we'll move on? There are some questions um, uh, related to this in, in the Q&A, which is that studies have shown that PIs have similar weight gain. Do we really know the right answer yet? And I think that's a, that's a fair uh, uh, question to discuss that PIs in the past had um, associations with weight gain. We've been focusing on INSTEs a lot, but that, those are in combination with TAF, and I, I think we'll talk about that. Um, so I don't know if we do know the right answer yet between PIs and INSTEs and the contribution of TAF, for example. And it's, it's fair to say that um, although the data is growing, showing relationships with select drugs and weight gain, we don't have a lot of data yet on what the impact switching has. Um, and I know there's at least one, there's several studies ongoing and one study in the ACTG that will hopefully start um, that will try to look at this in a systematic way. So let me move on. So the next one is just to remind everybody who's not familiar with some of the more compelling data that links uh, integrase inhibitors with weight gain was the advanced trial, the phase three randomized controlled trial that was the efficacy of dolutegravir with FTC-TAF versus FTC-TDF versus the Fabrin's FTC-TDF. These are non-pregnant patients. And what it showed was this weight gain that was highest with dolutegravir and even higher when dolutegravir was used with TAF than TDF and was particularly prominent with, prominent with over 22 pounds weight gain over two years in women in this South African study. And this is just one of several large studies that have provided us information about drugs and weight gain this was an analysis from multiple naive trials. And if you look on the panel on the left, it shows integrase inhibitors were associated with more weight gain than PIs and non-nukes, although you see weight gain when you start therapy in all regimens. And then in the central panel, Victegravir and Dolutegravir had a similar effect. There was more than L-Vitegravir And then if you look at the nukes, and sorry about the alignment of the figure legend, at the top you see the tap versus um, Abacvir and then TDF and then finally ZDV. So if you really want to avoid the problem, use ZDV, but I'm not going to recommend that. Um, but so there does seem to be this interaction with integrase inhibitors and particularly if used with TAF associated with weight gain. Um, and then this was just one of now several studies. This was presented at Croy that have tried to tease out what the clinical relevance of the weight gain is. Um, and not surprising, it is associated with some increased metabolic concerns. And this particular DAD analysis, it was concerns about the development of diabetes, which you might expect um, in people who are experiencing an increase in their BMI. So this is not just a cosmetic problem. Um, as far as switch studies, um, we talked about a variety of different switch strategies. This was one which you could argue would get people off of TAF, but not dolutegravir. This is to take people who were suppressed and put them on dolutegravir 3TC, and it showed non-inferiority in maintaining suppression, um, but not a lot of uh, good data on weight. And then this is what happens when you use deraverine in two nukes. This was actually one of the preferred options was a non-nuke in two nukes going away from integrase. We don't have the switch data yet, taking people and putting them on the NNRTI, but we have this study drive forward that looked at deraverine with two nukes versus um, darunavir, ritonavir with two nukes. And this is the weight data, pretty modest, 96 weeks for weight associated with deraverine. So at least when you start therapy, it seems the weight gain is less than with what we've seen with integrase inhibitors. Um, 
what happens when you switch is what's currently being investigated. Where are the guidelines on this problem? Um, basically acknowledging it exists without providing a lot of direction. So they say weight gain has been associated with initiation of therapy and subsequent viral suppression. The increase appears to be greatest with INSTEs and other classes. Greater weight gain has also been reported with TAF and TDF and greater with uh, Duraverine than Efavirenz. Further clarification on the distribution of weight gain, if it's associated with cardiometabolic risk, and if it's reversible upon discontinuation of the offending agent is needed. And I think all of this is true. We're all paying attention to it. I'm not sure we know exactly what to do yet, um, but it's, it's, a, it's important and I'm sure more data to follow. So let me transition now to optimizing therapy. Um, this is a 46-year-old woman diagnosed with HIV 10 years ago uh, when she presented with pneumocystis, a CD4 count 34 viral load of 430,000, did TDF-FTC of fabrins for several years, but then on and off therapy, had a, occasional elevations in viral load, stopped and then restarted therapy eight months ago with darunavir ritonavir based regimen and is now on the single tablet darunavir copsistat ftc taf with stable suppression for the last 12 months, but with gastrointestinal complaints that she relates to her antiretroviral therapy. So she's moved, she moved to LA where I met her, no records available on a stable regimen, continues to have these GI symptoms with a CD4 count of 290 and undetectable viral load. And she's interested in a new regimen uh, that's simple to take, like the one she's on, but maybe wouldn't be associated with the GI symptoms. So my question is first, would you recommend a proviral DNA genotype? This is a setting, person is undetectable, she's looking to make a switch, she's had a treatment experience in the past, may or may not have experienced true virologic failure, but is certainly at risk for having done so and never had a genotype done at the time, at least none that we have access to. So go ahead and vote, would you? Yes, no, or maybe? Great, nice mix, I love this. Um, again, some questions, there really aren't any good answers. So it's great to hear people's opinion. 45% yes, 30% no, and 25 to 30% maybe. Chip, what would you do? I'd probably go ahead and get a, a proviral DNA uh, uh, genotype. It's um, uh, more information is uh, down the road generally good, and um, there's no emergency in terms of making the change right now. So it'd be, I think, a good opportunity to get the data. Anyone else feel strongly one way or another before we move on? I don't love proviral genotypes <laughs> only because. I never know what to do with them because um, because the concurrency in in and we don't have great studies, but the concurrency with if they were detectable with plasma genotypes um, are are not perfect, and um, so it's hard to know if you've captured everything. I, I'm really interested in trying to get the historical data if you could, um, because I do think that we get a lot from medical records. Yeah, sometimes hard though. Yeah. Okay, so where are we with this? Um, again, you know, the guidelines have chosen to weigh in because everyone realizes that we're all struggling with this question. Um, so there's a potential role for assessing underlying resistance in those who are suppressed, and that's the attractive nature of it. It correlates with 
plasma RNA results and those who aren't suppressed, but again, a somewhat different situation. And the guidelines basically say that if switching in a suppressed patient at risk for prior resistance, it can be considered. Pretty strong statement, huh? For those who have no prior virologic failure on first or second regimen or have results from prior testing, the use is unlikely to provide additional information. Again, not our patient. And then the key, and I think this is what, you know, Monica, you're alluding to, is that you have to interpret it with caution. I think that's the key with any test. You just need to understand its limitations, where you may use it, where you may not, um, and interpret it with caution in deciding how it, how it will help you in your next steps. So a proviral genotype is not available um, for either because they couldn't get it or didn't want to. The question is, what would you do? Again, remember, stably suppressed, a history of possible failure on an NNRTI-based regimen in the past, but we don't know for sure and she has GI toxicity. Would you continue the regimen and treat simply? Would you switch to dolutegravir plus two nukes, pictegravir FTC tau, raltegravir two nukes, dolutegravir 3TC, dolutegravir ropivirine, or a long-acting cabotegravir ropivirine when it's available? Um, and for what it's worth, because I know this was discussed during the question and answer, um, my understanding is they're prepared to resubmit the data to the FDA, but it may take months for the FDA to complete the next review. So although we were hoping for it at the end of last year, sounds like it may be until the end of this year, early next year, before it's available. But I it's think it's coming. It's a long-acting review. <laughs> so go ahead and vote. Okay, wow, so almost 75%, Victegra FTC TAF. And um, if I like answers that are widely distributed across the choices, I'm gonna hate this one, this question anyway. But um, so most people, there's almost a consensus. Does anybody disagree with this choice? Does anybody have a choice other than this that they would have voted for as their preferred option? Yes, I, I do. Share. <laughs> this is why you get paid the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I uh, think that essentially, if we look at so so the concern here is that this patient has had off and on viral blips with older regimens in the past, um, and so of all the mutations that we would be concerned about, M184V would be one um, that this uh, patient may have acquired in the past. The data on um, INSTEs with M184V, I think, is more robust um, for dolotegravir versus bictegravir uh, with the Donning study. And, uh, the Donning study was really comparing dolotegravir versus lipidivir ritonavir in uh, those who had drug resistance. And um, dolotegravir kind of held a lot of uh, mutations, especially the M184, uh, was able to keep that regimen afloat. Um, the, the data, um, is, uh, definitely we do have the, the 1030 data for Bictegravir with, um, M184Bs in the past and the data is getting better. Um, but it's a little less, it's less robust than with Dolotegravir with this large, um, study with viral genotypes available, um, instead of a mix of, archive genotypes and the viral genotypes that we saw with Bictegravir in the 1030 data. So I'm 
most convinced about Dolotibiver right now, being able to, to be that robust backbone when you have resistance in the past to the possible NRTIs. And of course, uh, Cabin and LA Repuvering, those both mandated no resistance um, to at least the FLARE study with inexperienced patients, uh, mandated no resistance to Repuvering, uh, rep- um, and we don't know if this patient has had resistance to Afavirin's in the past. Okay, great. So there, there's some answers that, I mean, there are some answers that are clearly wrong, I think. Um, Dolutegravir 3TC and someone where you're worried they could have 3CC resistance uh, for sure wouldn't be optimal. Um, Raltegravir with two nukes with underlying nuke resistance is very risky. Um, and the CAB, like you say, we don't have a lot of data with the long-acting regimen. You just gave us some really good reasons to pick Dolutegravir. How strongly do you feel, though, that Bictegravir is a bad choice or just not your first choice? I think that it's a good choice. I think that it's been out since 2018. And now that we're in getting into 20, end of 2020, that we haven't seen a lot of resistance and people have absolutely used it in the setting of um, resistance. So we, in a way, have more clinical experience. Um, it's just that the clinical trial data is not as robust as with Dolotegravir with the Donning study. But that doesn't mean that I don't think it's a good choice. Yeah. Okay, great. Let me... um go on, just talk a little bit about, you know, just the switch issue and the whys and hows. Um, lots of good reasons to do it, including potential toxicity, like in this person. And the key is maintaining viral expression, the importance of considering previous antiretroviral therapy, resistance data in making the decision. And the switch mark provided this cautionary tale where uh, the study was stopped early in people switching from a, uh, from a boosted PI to raltegravir plus two new phase regimen. And it was mostly driven by people who had had a history of virologic failure and presumably they had some underlying resistance. Raltegravir was a relatively low barrier to resistant integrase inhibitor that we really relied on two active nukes for high levels of efficacy. Um, and so we learned from this that we do need to be cautious in switching from a high barrier drug like a PI to a lower barrier drug like a raltegravir, that the background regimen is active. And then everything started to change as we developed these second generation integrase inhibitors that appeared to have these higher barrier to resistance. And just to share the actual data that Monica was talking about, the Donning study was this uh, trial of people failing. So this wasn't a switch in suppressed people with underlying resistance. These were people failing NNRTI-based regimens uh, with underlying resistance who got randomly assigned to dolutegravir with at least one fully active nuke versus lopinavir-ritonavir with one, at least one fully active nuke. And the study was stopped early because of better efficacy, high levels of suppression in those people who received dolutegravir, higher than lopinavir-ritonavir in the 80% range. And that was true with or without underlying 3TC resistance. So we've come to appreciate that sort of dolutegravir falls into this category. Now, again, this wasn't a switch study, but there's hardly any reason to believe you can't extrapolate from what happens in people viremic to people who are suppressed. If anything, it should be easier to keep someone already suppressed suppressed than to get them there. And then we have the data emerging with bictegravir, and these are actually switch trials. This was the 40-30 trial where they took people, some of whom had underlying resistance, on a dolutegravir 2-nuke-based regimen and switched them to bictegravir 2-nukes or left them on their same regimen and showed that the virologic response rates remain very high 
despite underlying resistance um, in those who switched from dolutegravir to pictegravir. And then the most recent data was the BRAVE study presented at CROI. Again, this was a study of all black adults who were switched from a stably suppressed regimen, two nukes plus a third drug, um, to either stay on that or switch to Bictegra FTC TAP with two to one randomization. And you can see at the bottom, there was underlying resistance to nukes and non-nukes and even to PIs in these populations. So they did indeed have underlying nuke resistance and despite that maintained extremely high levels of virologic suppression. So I think we have emerging data. Um, the data with dolutegravirs, as said, is really strong for managing people with some underlying nuke resistance. Uh, and then emerging data, the pictegravir is also an effective option. And as I think stated, has been widely used in clinical practice with a pretty high level of success. So I know I'm coming, uh, I've cut into my question and answer period a little bit. So I'm gonna go ahead and stop now. Um, and perhaps we can do some uh, questions if there are any. Yes, so um, there are some questions um, and you've addressed a few, but there's some very interesting uh, questions around the weight gain issues. So one is that did the recent data presented at CROI that you um, referred to showed an increased incidence of diabetes associated with ISTEs as well as the weight gain? So it was specifically looking at how much increase in BMI they experienced. Um, so it was, it showed that the BMI increase associated with antiretroviral therapy was associated with an increased risk for the development of diabetes. So not the integrase inhibitor per se, it was based on how much weight they actually gained. So weight gain being associated with diabetes and thus a transitive property possibly. But at this point, it was the, this was specific data of course looking at the BMI and diabetes. Yeah, and that's really important. The studies that are looking at this, they're not, this isn't like the old days of indinavir where we're trying to sort out whether that caused insulin resistance. This is actually trying to assess whether there is an association between the weight gain that we see with these therapies and metabolic derangement. More questions on weight gain, and several of them can be collapsed into one, which is that, do you believe that the weight gain is in a way a return to health or the, disc, the viral elimination um, or just not having HIV and viremia, or is it more than that? Yeah, I mean, to be quite honest, up until the advanced study, and there's another randomized study, um, I was a bit of a nihilist about the actual association between select drugs and weight gain, always thinking that it, it, there were these confounders about return to health and tolerability of different drugs. But these randomized control trials are pretty compelling. So I'm increasingly convinced that there may be actually a biologic explanation for why certain drugs may do this more than others. It's still always hard to tease out, but when you see it in a randomized trial with pretty pronounced differences, it seems pretty convincing. There are people I know working with ex vivo models and things to try to determine out, determine if there is a biologic explanation for this. Um, but that's all work in progress. Uh, if anyone on my panel has any comments on this, you know, this is an area of which there's a lot of debate and discussion. I don't know if anyone has any other thoughts. I mean, I would like to bring up that in the DISCOVER trial, you know, where we just separate um, 
the INSTE from, uh, from just TDF versus TAF, because this was a trial that was comparing TDF versus TAF for PrEP, that there was still more weight gain with the TAF than the TDF, um, and all the way out to 96 weeks. So it does argue for a, for a true role of TAF in this weight gain question. And that does relate to another question that's come up um, with the Q&A was, and this is a great question, actually, was there weight data uh, with the Tango trial uh, that looked at switching to dolotegavir and 3TC? Um, as we said, can you take someone off their TAF or TDF and, and do better? And um, was there weight data presented with the Tango trial? I don't recall. Maybe others remember. I don't recall what the weight data was from that study. It's hard to imagine they didn't look. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember seeing it presented. I recall that everyone asked them immediately, where is it, where is it? And they said, we don't have it. So I don't think it ever was presented. And so That would really be pretty question. compelling, right? Just taking away the town. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think what happened is, I think that all clinical trials now will have weight. There's no question. Like if there ever wasn't weight before, every clinical trial looking at anything will have weight. Um, another question that's come up uh, is uh, what percentage of patients in um, 4030 and the BRAVE study did have genotypic resistance? Yeah, it was on the slides. My recollection is it's something like 15 to 25% from the studies, and it was a variable amount. A lot of 184V alone, and then much lesser extent, broader resistance. So I think the 184V question, the data is, is pretty strong that you can switch. The thing that the 4030 study that was interesting was it was dolutegravir to bictegravir. So these are people that already proved that they could remain suppressed despite underlying resistance with the high barrier integrase and just tested whether you could switch to an alternative, quote unquote, high barrier integrase. And it looked like you could. The BRAVE study, the nice thing about that is it wasn't all people who were on another integrase. They were on a variety of third drugs, including PIs. And it again showed, at least with 184V and a substantial number of people and some other mutations in others, that you could maintain high levels of suppression. If we have a minute more, there's just three fast questions I think we can address. Um, one is, do we know about the safety and efficacy of deravirine during pregnancy? I will say that that has not been studied, and so that is not currently on the guidelines, though the NNRTIs are, were as wildly enthusiastic about um, because of their less potency. And then, does anyone know if switching from COBE to ritonavir would be better in terms of reducing nausea? No idea. I think people seem to have to connect with one or the other. Like, it doesn't seem like I've heard that, yeah, that ritonavir would cause less nausea than cobacystin. It's a great question. And sometimes if you're backed into a corner and you really need the PI and there's GI tolerability, it may be the one thing that's worth trying, but I don't know the answer. And then I do think that this will come up in... Um, in, in the talk that we're going to have on HIV COVID interactions, um, which is that there is a concern that there will be antiretroviral medications due to manufacturing issues in China or other countries will um, be reduced in the setting of what's going on. And so I think that would be good to address. Maybe we'll come back to that in the Q&A for HIV and COVID, because I think there is a true concern about antiretroviral um, access during this time. 
And then uh, kind of a final, how do you address low-level viral load less than 100 in patients on Triamec or Bictarvi at 12 months? So that low-level viremia question. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, this is a question that's haunted us for quite a while now. And I think, although the data is not perfect, most of the data suggests that those people with viral loads either intermittently between undetectable and less than 200, or even persistently, that most of those people seem to be at low risk for progression. Most of those people seem to be at low risk for selecting for resistance. But every time we say that, there's data sets that show that they may be at higher risk for progression and that they are selecting for resistance. I think right now, most of the data continues to support us not blogging these people and enforcing adherence, avoiding drug, 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 food interactions, and pushing on. The only caveat I would make, which isn't terribly relevant nowadays, is that in those people, I generally feel more comfortable if they're on a regimen that has a high barrier to resistance as I'm pushing on. So if they're people on NNRTIs or old integrase, my tendency is to make sure that they're on a higher barrier drug like dolutegravir or bictegravir while I continue to watch. It doesn't usually change that viremic state, but it might. But at least if things go wrong, their likelihood of selecting from a resistance is probably lower in the short term. I think it is time now to end um, because we do have a break. And for people on East Coast time, this is lunch. Um, And it looks like we have a break until 12.05. So thank you so much, everyone, for your contributions. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, my panel. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.